We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. Front lines, countless front lines. Everywhere, symptoms of an invisible war abound. A war on the deepest wells of trust. A war on healthy disagreements. There's a war on the tap roots of patience. A war on elephants and a war on sound evidence. There's a war on the sweet silence between the sweet rains. There's a war on rhythm. Front lines, countless front lines everywhere. Symptoms of an invisible war abound. A war on the deepest wells of trust. A war on healthy disagreements. There's a war on the tap roots of patience. A war on elephants and sound evidence. There's a war on the sweet silence between the sweet rains. There's a war on rhythm. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 170, The Undefinable Spirit. Just Shrink Bigger. Croc E. Moses on the road to home. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. How's your coffee? It's good, it's great. Hockley Valley Coffee. Oh yeah, that's good coffee. It's toasty. I want a lather butter on it. Hogglyvalleycoffee.com. Let's move on, Harry. It's buttery and toasty. All right. So, welcome to the next episode of The Sill. And I want us to imagine something. I want us to imagine an April fool born in Yellowknife, Canada, and living over half his life in Southern Africa as a poet, musician, artist, and instigator. This is Crocky Moses. Born Henrik Brand, he first arrived in Swaziland from Medicine Hat, Alberta, aged 17, on a two-year United World College scholarship. He opted out of the University of Cape Town after six months and dove into the deep end of learning the drum kit from scratch in the 90s. He went on to play with bands in Swaziland and South Africa while also running a design studio called Fluid Design. The music industry was not to be his home, and after embracing his release from this oxymoron, he found himself doodling with words. Eventually, this creative refuge became a practice and a home as he came to realize he has words in his blood, his mother being a poet, his father a judge. He eventually gave voice and body to poems on stages across southern Africa and to some extent overseas. He literally handmade all his own poetry books and eventually taught himself guitar as a way to keep growing as an artist, but also out of necessity for income. Learning to sing and songwrite became the ultimate challenge and integrator of all his previous creative patterning. Over the last 10 years, this has matured into what he calls alternative folk dub roots blues. His performances are rhythm-driven and coax listeners to play attention. Driftwood, a volume of his poetry, lyrics, artworks, and music CD, was published by the University of South Africa Press in 2016. The highlight of his performance career was opening for the legendary dub poet Linton Kwesi Johnson, one of his inspirations, in Cape Town, 2009. Crocky Moses has been based in Ontario, Canada for the last four years. Crocky Moses, welcome to the SIL podcast. 
Thank you, Harry and Crocky. <laughs> so good to be with you guys. Oh, Thanks. Great to have you here. When I was thinking about this interview originally, the very first thing that popped into my head as a kind of thematic element to our conversation was the idea of home. Because mm. you've moved around a fair bit in your life, physically, psychically, spiritually, mm. etc. So I wonder whether you can talk about your idea of what home means to you as an idea, as an emotion, as an artist, let's say. Hmm. When I think of that word home, part of me goes straight to what would the verb of that be? Mm -hmm. So homing, the homing instinct. Because I've moved around so much, I've never had this pattern of having a, a sort of solid base where I grew up for 18 years right. or I've lived. So that's why I'm flipping the word home from a sort of noun physical space and focusing on the verb of the homing instinct. So what I'm trying to partly create a picture of is how being so much on the move has had me searching for home in a more metaphysical, spiritual, psychic way. And of course, so I go to the heart. Um, home is where the heart is. I don't know if that's Irish or English or where that saying comes from. I mean, I subscribe to that in a way, naturally. So that's really abstract what I'm saying, but I've had to go there to the heart because I've been on the move so much. You know, my parents divorced at age seven. That was in Yellowknife where I was born. And then my mother had custody and we moved to Bell Rock, Ontario. We were there for maybe two years. And then we moved to British Columbia outside Vancouver to a place called Surrey and we were there for two years. And then we moved again. Hmm. My mother had remarried at that point. And then we were in a place called Aldergrove. And then I made the decision to move to Medicine Hat to be with my father. So after two, three years in Aldergrove, I was then in Medicine Hat, Alberta. There for three years, I think. And then suddenly I was off to Africa at wow. age 17 on a two-year uh, sojourn to the United World College of Southern Africa in Swaziland. And that's how it was known back then, the kingdom of Swaziland. Then I finished the two-year program, came back to Canada, and then found myself drawn back to Africa, which is kind of strange to say, but it was this homing thing. I somehow felt my destiny, my sense of home. These were formative years. So a lot of my best friends came from that two-year experience mm. at the school in Swaziland. So I went back to the kingdom of Swaziland at age 19. I was there for, I think, a year. And then I'd been accepted to the University of Cape Town. So I was off to Cape Town. <laughs> so the pattern here is just a lot of on the move, on the move. Right. Yeah. And, and speaking of home, Croc, which began in Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories, which is, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Yukon Territories here in Canada, about 400 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. And how would you describe your life growing up there? And the influence that your parents had and how that northern wide open landscape may have had on your personal development as an individual and as a poet or musician? Well, it, it was quite a, a wild upbringing. We lived on Nathan Island, which is uh, off of Yellowknife, the town. Mm. So uh, being subarctic most of the year, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and good eight months of the year are snow, hardly any sunlight. But my parents were both very active. We spent a lot of time outside, regardless oh. of whether it was winter or summer. So in winter, we did a lot of snowshoeing, skiing, hockey outside, skidooing. Um, in the summer, we would do these epic camping trips deep, deep into the bush. 
and fish and um, hunt for duck and cook that on the open fire at night. So a lot of my initial years coming into the world were wild. It was I remember my mother's a, a big raven, northern raven person. So a lot of it is the lakes, the, the snow drifts, and of course hockey. I became obsessed with hockey, and that was my little dream. And talk about the antithesis of South Africa. Yeah, hockey became... My mother eventually took me out of hockey and put me into dance, and that was humiliating. But in hindsight, that was my entry into rhythm, and I was maybe age 12. Why humiliating? Well, because back in that time, early 80s, I'm a young, white, 12-year-old, mm -hmm. and all my mostly white male companions were all headstrong hockey buffs. Mm -hmm. um, the rhythm thing, um, you know, bless my mother. Uh, obviously, at that point, I had no idea I was going to end up in Africa. But sure. in hindsight, I think, wow, how did she have the instinct to say? And I'll tell you briefly why I said, why is it humiliating? Because personally, even though I know what the imagery is, I've always thought of dance, a superb conditioner, and as you say, gaining a sense of rhythm. And athleticism is also very underestimated how much athleticism is involved in being a good dancer. Yeah. And I can actually uh, empathize with you because when I was a child of nine or 10, mm. my parents put me into tap dance lessons. Oh, here we go. Okay. Well, I can picture that. <laughs> <laughs> and at my first recital, at the end of the recital, my parents came up to me and said, Harry, you didn't look up at one time. <laughs> You're looking at your feet the entire time you were dancing. It was just horrible. It was very mortifying. But I get it. These are parents' influences. Mm. So you've got that in your early life. Mm. You've got your experiences in Africa. Have you evolved a kind of unique philosophy of life based upon all of these experiences? Something you, a core set of beliefs, let's say, or thoughts you come back to now and then when going through difficult times, say? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the lines that I tell myself if I'm struggling, sometimes I don't have a home. So I, I say to myself, there's something about feeling at home, wherever you are, mm. the possibility that you can feel at home. And that's maybe what I was trying to say earlier. So I try and remind myself if I'm down that, ah, you can always feel at home, even if you don't literally have a home base where you know you can be indefinitely. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's the one sort of philosophy. And then I always go back to rhythm. So pace and the pulse and the peace reminds me to just pace yourself, be here and be in the peace. And again, I go back to rhythm. I, I say to myself, rhythm is the decision. Be in the flow, mm -hmm. try and connect to my sense of flow. And then lastly, I think it's Latin. I don't want to pretend that I've studied Latin, but there's an expression, nullius in verba, which means take no one's word for it. And I think you can extend that to mean find out for yourself. Uh, now, wasn't there a South African word that, uh, oh, yeah. that you mentioned at some point? Yeah, I would definitely say that's part of my philosophy and way of living. And I learned that from nearly 10 years of living in Swaziland. And that's uh, gashle, gashle which means to just go easy, take it easy. Mm. And that's a loose translation. I'm obviously not doing it any justice. But you would say that to each other if someone's stressed out or if people are rushing, you know, it's just, hey, gosh, gosh, hey, when I gosh, gosh. Right. Now, uh, did you bring along any sort of poetry that you could maybe share with us? 
Well, what I thought I would do is a piece that is a song, so it's a melodic song, and I'm going to try and do it without the guitar, without the music, which will be interesting. <laughs> and this yeah. has never been done. It's a song that's uh, a collaboration also with a, a drummer named Rabit from Cape Town. Mm. And we're just trying to finish up a number of these songs. So I'm going to attempt to do it without the guitar. Bear with me. I'm going to try and sing sure, it. absolutely. Okay, so the, the working title is Enveloped. It'll change, but that's the working title for now. So here we go. Out the gate, running late, for a killer deadline. But my house keys take to the street. They're making a beeline for the drain. Yes, I'm stressing, I'm fretting, I'm stressed, obsessed. I'm a natural born sucker, sucking for success. It's time to face the music, hold it, hold it together. Wild composure, one day we will glide. We're getting carried away. Through all of this, something lives, dare we see. We're sharing the same mystery. There's something about feeling at home, wherever you are. My fear of missing out loosens its grip. There's a gap in the gossip. It's time to face the music. Hold it, hold it together. Wild composure. One day we will glide. We're getting carried and carried away. Through all of this, something lives, dare we see. We're sharing the same mystery. There's something about feeling at home wherever you are. Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> it makes Peter want to whistle. <laughs> it really did, by the way. No, that's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Let me ask you this, though, because it brings up this next question. Mm. What I've noticed about your poetry and your music is this deep sense of self-honesty. So I'm wondering how you come to that place where that sense of honesty is critical to your art. Oh, say. thank you. Mm. Well, I would say it came from entering the world of poetry, not just as a writer myself, but attending a lot of the open mics, the culture of spoken word poetry. And that mainly happened uh, downtown in Cape Town in the early 2000s. And there was a place called Off the Wall Morocco Cafe, which was run by an amazing chap named uh, Richard Ishmael, who's now not with us. Uh, sadly, he was murdered. Oh, but Richard Ishmael was part of the ANC. I think he was part of the Mkonto Wisizwe, which was the, the armed wing of, of the ANC during mm. the struggle. And he had this incredible heart and he opened up this small little cafe, which was down in the heart of Cape Town. And a lot of politicians would come there at lunch and lawyers and people, business people and visiting musicians. You know, Nina Simone signed her little thanks on the wall there. And so it was this little hub in the early 2000s. So that's six years after Mandela came into office. And this became a, a poetry hub. And that's where I really first cut my teeth. And I was unfamiliar with the culture of spoken word. And this culture goes way back. So I, to answer your question, as I got immersed in that, I realized and heard people sharing their stories, opening their hearts and just realizing, wow, often very traumatic 
stories or accounts poetically of stuff that people have been dealing with. And I can remember Richard, uh, the owner there, he also had a, a collection of poetry books, mainly South African. And I remember reading or opening one of them and reading this poem by this young teenager that gives an account of being raped by her father. And it just, it shattered my heart and it made me realize that, oh, okay, this is a safe space to first of all, look within yourself, but also to participate and be part of a, well, it's not just a unique South African culture. It's a part of the human culture, mm -hmm. I, I believe, the, the oral traditions. But I think there is an aspect in particular with South Africa where so many people have had traumatic experiences. So I think that was really the start of realizing, okay, this is something I want to hold myself to. How honest can I be? <laughs> and is suffering in some ways critical to creating poetry, or at least your poetry? Well, or the experience of suffering? I think there's many aspects to the expression, the creative practice of poetry. One of them is it's an exploration. And in my case, it's been an exploration of being able to unearth stuff that I've buried which is some childhood trauma with sexual abuse. So there's that element of suffering. But at the same time, there's other areas that come up in the creative poetic process. And that's inspiring. It's almost, uh, what's the word? Almost borders on ecstatic. Mm. And that's where my obsession with rhythm comes in. Realizing that healing or balancing, rebalancing can come from rhythm and the practice of being creative. After everything that you've described, what propels you? What energizes you? What keeps you engaged with your creative spirit? Let me start by saying I never have writer's block. Um, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse because, and I say that because there's so much to do. There's so many unfinished songs and poems. Um, mm. And that can be the same kind of curse as having writer's block. I mean, I don't say it is. I suppose what keeps me going is that um, I'm always learning and realizing that I'm still such a beginner. As a musician, I'm really just such a beginner. But I also find inspiration almost everywhere. And it's part of the practice. And that's part of the, the poetic practice and process, I would say, is you learn to appreciate subtleties, whether it's internally or externally. And in that sort of research, I find inspiration and it just never stops. So um, let me ask you this in terms of when the creative process hits you, whether it's always there, I'm sure it wanes up and down depending on the day, how you're feeling and so on. Would you say that most of the time the creative juices flow when you're on your downside or on your upside? Well, they flow regardless. If I'm down, I don't always have the energy. You know, I may be lying down on my back, but I'm still hearing and what I call play attention. So I can be down, but I can still play attention. Would it be fair to say that it's almost like an antidepressant of sorts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's go to town. Let's go and yeah. march in front of some of those pharmaceuticals buildings. <laughs> no, I say that in all sincerity because you and I may not be the same. We may not get this thing from the same place, but I know myself, if I'm feeling off, mm. I typically go, my mind goes to the things that I'm grateful for and the simple things. So whether it's putting on some music, whatever, yeah. it's a way of not going to that depth, which is really, really difficult to come out of 
without outside assistance, i.e. drugs, drink, whatever. I, I just find that the simple things, the simple joys, for me, they work. I'm not saying that they work for you. Mm. That's why I asked the question. I would agree, and I would go so far to say that, I mean, I'm generalizing, but rhythm is, is medicine, it's, and the creative practice for me. Again, I'm only talking for myself. Yeah, it's an antidepressant, and that's where I turn. And it's a challenge to be able to take whatever state you're in and remember, be grateful, remember, I have tools. I'm so privileged, lucky, fortunate to have these tools. Exactly. And so I'm just going to extend that now into the practicalities of life, because... <laughs> As a poet, musician, it's not always easy to deal with the practical side, which is work-related, financial, and so on, sustaining oneself. Mm. Beyond the obvious challenges that you have, especially the last two years during COVID, which everyone has found in varying degrees more difficult, how do you deal with that part of your life with the practical issues while maintaining your energy and love for what you do? Yeah, well, it's been a sideswipe, really, the, the whole COVID event. In real terms, I was due to go on a Canadian tour, my first Canadian tour ever. And it started, the first date was Friday the 13th, March, Friday the 13th, 2020. The same day that here in Canada, we, the lockdowns were brought in. So I did the first gig in Flesherton in Ontario, but the tour got shut down. So that was a blow. That's, that's why I say sideswipe, because I had funding from the League of Canadian Poets. I had some really, really special gigs lined up. The challenge comes when you've got to pay rent. and right. uh, So that's where I've had to deepen my reach, yeah. you know, how I exist. Uh, I have to get creative. And it was a struggle because I, I really do not enjoy performing through Zoom, for example. And I had a gig with one of the universities here in the province, and I remember doing a virtual gig to the, the English class, and everyone had their screen off. So I couldn't see one face. I couldn't see any students. I was performing to, to nothing. I felt so disconnected. Look, I won't turn down a gig. I'll never turn down a gig for many reasons, not just for the money, but mainly for the money. So I'm having to re-evaluate how I'm going to continue. Right. Um, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I asked you the question because I lived on both sides, so to speak, because I come from the standard work world as well. And I know how difficult it can be when you find something that you truly love and truly want to do. And then you have to deal with the reality of the world that we live in. Because you're living here. That's why I asked you, perhaps if you were living in the jungles of Africa, it would not be an issue because mm. you could barter for bananas, you could, not to be trite here, but in the world that we live in, Western culture, where you have to buy food, rent, and so on, you're living in an urban environment, it's much more challenging. I believe that there are a lot of artists who are discouraged from continuing in their passion or their view simply because they can't deal with the practical end of things. Yeah. Well, I nearly went there. I nearly just said, I'm done. And part of me feels I'm only just getting started. Learning to play guitar is still fairly new. Learning to sing melodically is still fairly new. And putting those two together and being a songwriter is still fairly new. And really, that's my big passion is this songwriting thing. So to stop that, just as I've got those skills now, and the most integrated 
versions of all my poet lyrics and rhythms and melodic phrasing all comes through in the songwriting. So to give up and stop now when I'm just about to finish songs with Robbie in Cape Town, the drummer, I just couldn't give up. I couldn't stop. But it still doesn't answer the question of money and rent. And in a way, I've just decided I'm willing to suffer through this. I've done it before in South Africa. There's always these waves yep. and they're horrible. And I put that into my work. I've studied money and looked at why is it this way? But I also have to say that Canada also has a lot more funding uh, than, say, South Africa. So the possibilities of being able to be sustainable here were just night and day compared to South Africa. So that's another reason why I've not called it a day. Yeah, no, no, I don't think you should. As I said, I just wanted to bring that up in the discussion because there's a certain idea that people have about artists. And unfortunately, from where I sit anyway, oftentimes... It's the way we value things. Yeah, yeah. And people don't necessarily give it the value equal to the enjoyment that they derive from it. Yeah. A little bit of levity. I love that word, yeah. I think that's what the world needs right now. Yeah. So thanks for providing some of it. <laughs> Can I respond to that and Absolutely. say that having lived in Southern Africa, it was a massive education. And that levity that you touched on there... I would say, particularly when I lived in Swaziland, now known as Eswatini, that's where I learned. That's partly what gasle gasle means. It's just easy, does it? And you know, I'd come from Canada, this green 17-year-old white guy, and I'd never heard Bob Marley and never smoked a joint. And, and I arrived there. So the 10 years that I lived there really taught me that, oh, there's other ways to live, obviously. Mm -hmm. But in the language and the culture and the, the elements in Swaziland and Southern Africa. It's just trying to give credit to the culture and that part of the world where I lived for 30 years. And somehow as a white North American, you were accepted into that culture mm. and sounds fairly seamlessly. Would that be accurate? Oh, yeah. When Mandela came into office in 94, it wasn't immediate, but there became this incredible wave and spirit of optimism and collaboration. There was such goodwill from people from all walks of life, people that weren't even South Africans that had moved to South Africa, me being one of them eventually. There was this goodwill to co-create this country. Let's heal. Let's co-create. So the identity politics of today, being white and black, wasn't really, that wasn't an issue when Mandela came into office. He was about forgiveness. Let's learn. Let's go through the truth and reconciliation process. But let's grow. Let's heal. Let's build. So the issue of being white and male, it wasn't an issue. And I chose to move to Cape Town to be part of South Africa and in 96, I joined a band there and I knew I was joining the arts community and, and that's where I wanted to participate in this rebuilding of South Africa. Sounds like you were there at a beautiful time, a very important blossoming time. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Let's, for argument's sake, lose these last two years. Yeah. Let's just flush them away. <laughs> yeah. I would like to do that. Anyway, but for the sake of argument, prior to this period, when you were engaging audiences, when you were on stage performing in South Africa and in other places, is there a moment, an onstage moment, where the kaleidoscope of everything you've been trying to do and feeling and creating really came together and crystallized into something like in a moment of aha, or this is perfect, or something that might have happened at a concert where you went, ah, oh, this is why it is. This is why we're doing this. 
Yeah, I'd say um, in South Africa, there was a community two hours west of Johannesburg, which is a small town called Khut Mariko. And they have an annual festival. And I was invited there maybe short of 20 years ago. And, and since then, I've gone back, not every year, but have developed this relationship with the community. And they specifically use the arts to transform their community. So during apartheid, uh, for example, in that town, the black people were forcibly removed from that town. All of these kind of things that people of Khut Marika wanted to address. And we we're talking about Afrikaner farmers, people in the town. And so I was witnessing how this community chose to use the arts. And I was called in to participate with my poetry. And then eventually I arrived one day with my guitar and started singing songs. That was one of those aha moments where I realized, okay, this works. I've got to carry on with mm. the poems, with the rhythms, with the guitar riffs, with learning to sing, with the craft of songwriting, mm. and just keep going and keep opening up. And maybe to move a little bit, you know, fast forward to now, prior to the COVID event, I was asked to once a month come and sing for a meditation group down by Meaford. And I was asked if I would just come and sing, but with no words, bring the guitar. And I'd never done that before. So I jumped in. And here again was another aha moment. So I was just improvising vocal melodies over chords, my palette of chords. And there was another moment where I was feeling, oh, okay, yeah, this is a sign. This is an extension and an evolution of all of these facets coming together. And it was quite liberating to actually be able to improvise and disengage the word side of the brain, essentially doing anyways in, in my bedroom. I'm, yeah. I'm always playing the guitar and just finding a melody and not necessarily looking for any words at that point. Now, I want to take us in, into a little divot here. Yeah. You know, having been on stage many times myself, there are moments where I've gone, Ooh, this is bombing, folks. This is this yeah. is not good. <laughs> going down. Yeah, with the responses. Yeah. Have you experienced that? And what did you do in those moments? What did you think to yourself? Out of curiosity, because you're a performer. I've definitely had a few of those. <laughs> One, I was invited to this fundraiser for the Children's Hospital of South Africa and um, the local casino in Peter Maritzburg, that's where this event was being held, had sponsored rooms for the performers. It wasn't a massive auditorium, but it was like a small auditorium. So they sponsored that space and the accommodation and access to the restaurant. But what I was also asked to do was to go and do some poems in the casino itself <laughs> uh -oh. and to kind of promote the event. To a casino. Yeah. <laughs> and this casino was round space. It had a bit of a dome and was kind of backlit with this kind of blue neon black light sort of. Nothing like the Globe Theater. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> and what was more shocking is that there's a kind of food court with restaurants that have open windows and look down slightly onto the casino. And this whole affair is open to families. Mm. There's families milling around with their, you know, mm. parents with their children and they're eating in the restaurant and down around the slots. And there, <laughs> there was this one section, which is obviously like a, an entertainment section right. where they have comedians and maybe a band. And so that's where we were asked the performers to do a small set and, you know, try and bring in some of the people from the casino to come to the fundraising event for the children's hospital. <laughs> and the expressions on people's faces as they were looking at me from the slot machines. I don't have words. <laughs> But that was a real bomb. It just, oh, that was yeah. three lemons. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> or three cherries. Yeah. yeah. These are the things, though, that getting back to relegating it to everyday life. The challenges you're experiencing as an artist or as a musician are really the challenges that people experience every day in different forms. It's the same idea. You may not be bombing on a stage, but you're bombing in your daily routine. You're bombing in the events of the day. Yeah. You're dealing with these things. And, and to me, the significance of the arts in terms of lifting spirits, mm. in my opinion, extremely underestimated. It's undervalued. Yeah. And let me ask you this, too. We have to address it because it's the elephant in the room. It's the elephant in every breath we take these days, it seems, is how are you facing into our situation with COVID, with the restrictions, personally and societally? How are you facing into that? And how are we, you and me and Peter and everyone, going mm. to find our way out of that into a better future? Mm. I'm just curious about your take on it. Well, I think it starts with words. That's one of the, the main starting points and looking at how words are used in media. It's accountability, I suppose, but also looking at the words I use, how we use words and how we lie or how we've been lied to. So I think there's a big element there about words and the arts or, you know, poetry speaks to that. And that's what I partly stand for is, can I write a poem that kind of inspires you to listen? and make you realize, oh, wow, words can be charged. They can impart something beyond just a logical meaning. They can impart charge and feeling and, and a whole realm that's maybe beyond this word language that we engage in. Mm. So we're talking about inspiration here, and maybe that's the way to answer your question, is that maybe our way forward is not just through the arts, but the arts are the obvious way where we find inspiration. Um, well, we function on primarily on an emotional basis, and the arts are altering the emotions and it's the emotions that we essentially make decisions on yeah this applies to everyone we covered this in our last podcast that's right yeah the meanings mm -hmm. and what you're imparting with the spoken word whether it's sung spoken or otherwise is a huge impact on people's psyche and the trick as you say is to engage them mm. I have found myself, despite all of the restrictions, mainly towards the end of last year, I found myself doing small house concerts, which in a way goes back to how I came into the whole game of poetry, was just very informal, small, not even events, just gatherings. And then I realized, oh yeah, this is how my art functions. Small, direct. I didn't even have to set up a mic. I didn't have to plug in the guitar. And there was this interactivity. And that's the big point, is the interactivity. And in a formal gig, you know, you get that maybe before the show or after the show, or, or to some extent, if, if you've got those comedic tendencies, which I don't really have. So I don't find it easy to kind of banter with an audience. But that interactivity is what I'm trying to focus on. And remember, the scale of what we're in right now, the, the scale of this wobble, it's so big. Trying to process all of the different strands of this collision. It's not just a virus. So that's part of also what we're involved with. We're in a sort of suspended state of shock because it's not just the virus. It's all of these different strands and it involves historic things and involves like, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to go forward? It's a bit cliche to say this, but I have consciously, I'm consciously making the choice to continue and try and step up. This is when artists are really, really needed, or poets. Mm -hmm. And some of my latest material is, is really trying to speak to now, to possibly where we might all relate. And last year was one of the hardest years. 
And my poetry and song bearing really saw me through that. The one song, Emergency Mercy, I was in a terrible state. My girlfriend had broken up with me. I had to move out of the house I was living in. And all I did was every day, I just said, I've got to hit that guitar and hit those lyrics and just put all that pain and confusion and just put it to this song called Emergency Mercy. everywhere. Symptoms of an invisible war abound. A war on the deepest wells of trust. A war on healthy disagreements. There's a war on the tap roots of patience. A war on elephants and sound evidence. There's a war on the sweet silence between the sweet rains. There's a war on rhythm. There's a war on the family of musicians A war on song-bearing And a war on your unsung mother's intuition There's a war, there's a war on abolition A money or a miracle, what exactly do we need? Emergency, emergency mercy It's for us, it's for us to sing it alive So beam it out loud Now, 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 now Now, 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 now How now? How now in this uncommon suspense? There's a war on common sense There's a war on ceasefires Which is a war on peace And a war on transgenerational grief There's a war on our elders, a war on the brave There's a war on full disclosure, a war on whistleblowers and soothsayers There's a war on the miracle of Rebel Clown and his soft cloud heart There's a war on rhythm There's a war on the good honest art of listening A war on intimate moments of bliss There's a war on verbs and a war on poetic justice Which is all to say There's a war on that which cannot be owned Money or a miracle, what exactly do we need? Emergency, emergency mercy It's for us to sing it alive So beam it out loud Now crisis, deep and widening divide. Dare I say we'll find our bearings in this blessing in disguise. Dare I say it's for us to lean into this divide, to open up some other side, mother's side. To 
go there together, together, differences aside, to lean deeper still, beyond depth, mother's sight, a resounding realization to see us through, to see us through and true, what's easy for you isn't easy for me. What's easy for me isn't easy for you And what's easy for you isn't easy for me Emergency, emergency mercy For the love of inspiration, sing it alive So beam it out loud Now, 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 now. Right here, in rhythm with, right now A sound remedy in rhythm with The almighty mystery A sound equanimity In rhythm with, rhythm with The paradox of it all A sound humility In rhythm with the omnipresent Mother side, mother side Dare I say we'll find our bearings in this beautiful surprise. Wow. So yeah. do you have any way for people to reach mm. your music, your poetry, or you directly that you'd like to share? Yeah, I'm sort of focusing or funneling most of the material on Bandcamp. Bandcamp is one of the best platforms for musicians. So all, virtually all of my catalog is there. Okay. Bandcamp is a platform, and then just type in Croc E Moses. And there's no dot after the E. No dot after the E. <laughs> um, so that's where most of it is, and it's now got a function where you can watch, for example, like with Emergency Mercy, you can watch the music video. So that's the best platform where you can virtually get everything, and you can also make payments if you want. You can name your price is what I'm trying to say. So, so that's Bandcamp. Bandcamp.com, B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P.com. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks very much for today, Croc, and good luck. I look forward to anything new that you put out. And once again, thanks for being on The Sill. Yeah, me too. And I mean, I hated it. I hate poetry. I hate music. <laughs> but I'm happy that you were here anyway to share this stuff. And I hope people connect with your art and your spirit because it's a beautiful spirit. Let me just ask one last question. Sure, go ahead. Is there anything that you would like to say to... This is a tough question. Anything you'd like to say to the world at large right now? If you had the world, the population of the planet right in the audience and you were on stage after one of your poems or whatever, what would you like to say to these people? Yeah, um, I would try and just touch on the craziness of paradox, how there is so much hectic, crazy stuff happening, yet there is still a lot of inspiration that's there and deepening and it's happening at the same time and therein lies the paradox and how can we individually collectively how can we harness that or engage that in how we heal or how we try and understand or make sense and yeah i take everything back to rhythm so i would always encourage people to dance move your body shake your bones and of course go and find a poet to adopt <laughs> <laughs> beautiful 
Thank you. For coming. Thank you, Harry, and thank you, Peter. And I just have to also acknowledge thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to poems and songs. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> might be everyone's cup of coffee, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> Ciao, Peter. Ciao, Harry. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to the SIL podcast.